politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow patriots and taxpayers, to the one and only Conservative Review podcast here at our Northern Command Center in Central Maryland. This is Daniel Horowitz back in the house on this fine Tuesday. And uh, gosh, if you're looking for discussions over impeachment and Ukraine, I think you guys know already you're in the wrong place. But I do want to pivot off of this discussion over impeachment, as we always do here, to discuss why there are more important things we need to be talking about. And if you do care about President Trump being reelected, guess what? The best way to jujitsu impeachment is by having a narrative to run on. And there's no greater narrative than localism, community. We've talked about that a lot here before, but not just local issues like the roads and taking out the trash, but applying the national and even international issues back to the community. People ultimately vote on what affects them, what they feel affected by most. And as we've said a number of times in our endless focus, particularly on domestic crime as well as foreign national crime and irresponsible immigration policies, refugee resettlement, illegal immigration, there is no greater problem that sits at the nexus of everything people care about than what we call here social transformation without representation. People seeing their communities transformed in a negative way that affects every facet of their lives, that forces them to proverbially pay for the rope to hang themselves on. That is the biggest narrative anyone could have running into an election. So you guys knew this already, but if you follow the news closely, you knew I was going to talk about this Washington Post article about Worthington, Minnesota, a small town being transformed by the resettlement of, of tons of Central American teens into its community. It was a terrific article, not for what they intended. They intended to paint the residents as a bunch of racists. But in fact, the average person is going to view that article as, wait a minute, I didn't realize this was that bad. That's a big problem. So I would actually like to congratulate them for proving our point, even if they didn't intend to do it. But I'm going to give a little bit of a long-winded introduction into getting to that by coming back to crime first. And before we come back to crime first, we're going to come back to impeachment. How does this all tie together? All right, here we, here we go. Here's a shot at it. Impeachment, crime, social transformation, and local communities through open borders, refugee resettlement. Where is this all tied together? Republicans until now, and I think this is probably still Trump's calculus, was predicated on the fact that recent history with Bill Clinton's impeachment has shown that impeachment is a loser for the party pushing it. The notion is that basically people want you to focus on the issues. They don't want you to distract with it. It's all political anyway. There's nothing really legal to it these days. And, you know, especially headed into a re-election, if the people don't want the guy, they won't re-elect him. If they do, they'll re-elect him. Don't waste your time in impeachment. I, I think that's kind of the understanding of what happened to Republicans in 90, 
798 or so, although that was after Clinton's reelection with um, with impeachment. And, and the premise was that if Democrats would go and push impeachment now, it would hurt them more than help them. And that's why Trump isn't scared of it. And that's why, at least until now, Nancy Pelosi uh, wasn't exactly that um, enthusiastic to push it. Now, we're starting to see a change. They feel like they had this issue with Ukraine. And I'm not going to get into that for now because I, was like, I, I can't sit and defend everyone for everything they do, they do because it's two bad parties doing bad things badly to each other, as Steve Dace always says. I, you know, we have our own agenda here and we're going to keep pushing it. And, you know, the Democrats obviously will never push our agenda. We're going to get Trump and as many Republicans to push our agenda as we can until we start a new party. That's essentially our agenda here. But I will tell you that if, if you really want Trump to get reelected, there is a concern now that impeachment could actually hurt him. And because what impeachment is designed to do, obviously, they don't control the Senate. They're never going to convict. Um, but having it in the House, what it's designed to do is to build the drumbeat of, aren't you tired of this? Constant scandals, constant drama. Let's have a return to normalcy. That's really what they want to do with this. And Republicans would be stupid not to see the dangers. All my colleagues are like oblivious. There's, oh my gosh, just like Trump won last time, he'll win this time, no matter what. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to fight for it. Oh, ha ha, they're going to do impeachment. Let's just focus on combating the Democrats and impeachment from now until next November, and, and we're good to go. The problem with that is that we had a midterm election, and the election showed that the bottom fell out from under the Republican map, that they've lost suburban voters, and, and that is a big problem. Now, I've said this 100 times, that Democrats ultimately, once they get a specific nominee who will likely be very radical and, in my view, not too appealing to most people, it's going to even up the score and maybe it will be more like 2016 again. But you can't count on that and you don't want to leave it to that and you want to ensure you're going to win. And as of now, the map looks really bad. That's just the reality. You can't deny that. And Part of the problem is because Republicans have no narrative. They have no sense of purpose. There's no being. And what that allows the Democrats to do is just stick them with a bunch of scandals, whether it's fair or unfair. Part of why I believe Clinton succeeded is because at the end of the day, bring it back to localism. People, where, where people cared about policy most, it didn't affect them. Whether you agree with it or not, they weren't bothered by the Clinton scandals because they said, look, the economy was doing great. You had unparalleled prosperity because of the tech boom. You know, it was it was on par with the Industrial Revolution. It really, you know, Clinton just lucked out that that happened on his watch. He also lucked out that we were in between. The death of the Soviet Union and 9-11. So it was the perfect, you know, peacetime. Um, era in, in this country. Um, he triangulated. He agreed with Republicans on welfare reform. By the way, tough immigration laws, which people forget about. By the way, ahem, the crime bill, tough on crime laws, he agreed to. Crime was finally going down. The budget deficit was going down. Jobs were 
creation was soaring. Um, revenues were soaring. It was peaceful. That's why Clinton won. Right now, we have no narrative. There's a lot of disquiet in the world. Fairly or unfairly, the economy is not really being touted as so good. And look, I warned about this. I said, everyone was like, this is the era of Trump 4% growth. And really, we didn't even hit three at the peak. And now we're back down to two because of the debt, because of the big spending, because Republicans pissed away two years that they could have defined themselves and defined their political opponents. So without a narrative, I don't know if it's so clear that impeachment is going to hurt the Democrats. I think the jury's still out on that. But that's why it's so important that Republicans stop and, and conservative media people stop focusing on stupidity and seeding the next year and a half or year and a third to just that this is it. Left wing policies continue on autopilot and we just talk about the scandals. But you've got to have a narrative to combat this. Now, before, again, and this is a long uh, intro before we get to the main course. I hope I get to it. <laughs> I have a way of going off into tangents, but this is all important. I'm sure many of you who saw this this morning knew I was going to talk about this as well. The political article, Trump snubs Jared Kushner's signature accomplishment. Jailbreak. The president thinks criminal justice reform is a political loser and hasn't been shy about saying so. When President Trump huddled with campaign aides in the late spring to discuss his bid for re-election, the White House senior advisor Jared Kushner told his father-in-law that he should highlight last year's historic passage of the First Step Act. And basically, Trump wasn't interested and told Kushner that he didn't think his core voters would care much about it, a bipartisan deal for which he's since accused Democrats of trying to steal credit. Quote, it was clear that he thinks is a total dud, said a person familiar with the meeting. He made it abundantly clear he doesn't think it's worth talking about. Now, I think it's worth talking about. It's worth talking about to go on offense, to have tougher on crime laws, to hang weak on crime laws, letting out gun felons, letting out gun traffickers, letting out murderers and rapists and child sex offenders, hang that around the Democrats' neck. In other words, it's not a false choice between touting Trump being a mini-me of left-wing crime policies versus just saying nothing. Trump needs to stick with his original promises. And basically, they go on to say that Trump is mad of how this whole issue panned out. He's really mad that he did it. He's saying he's furious at Jared because Jared is telling him he's going to get all these voters who are, who are felons. And um, let's see what else we got here. One, one aide said it would be difficult to say it's a change of heart. I don't think his heart was ever really in it. And um, he's been telling Jared, I got nothing from that. Adding that the president feels duped. Um, and, 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 you know, whatever. I mean, I, I think it's worth going through all of this. And they close with this, 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 uh, Quote here. And they say, um, you let people out of jail early, commute sentences, something bad happens because of this effort, and it's going to be one more egg on their face or even worse, blood on their hands. Any smart political person would not go out bragging that they let criminals out of jail. I've been screaming that, as you all know, from the rooftops for four years. Fell on deaf ears. Now, Many of you might say, this is Politico, this is anonymous sources, 
And normally I'd agree with you, but I think we all know this is true anyway. Two months after Trump passed this, he went out and said we need the death penalty for these very people. Okay, I mean, we all know his heart's never in this. Um, Where is this? Trump wrote in his book, The America We Deserve. And this is what he's always felt. The rest of us need to rethink prisons and punishment. The next time you hear someone saying that there are too many people in prison, ask them how many thugs they're willing to relocate to their neighborhood. The answer is none. That's a quote from Trump's book. (sighs) Why am I telling you this? Well, obviously it's an important story, but here's the deal. Here's the deal. So many of my colleagues who are dumb as mud, and I'll, I'll say that straight out, who are dumb as mud in this business, they're balloons in a wind, they have no moral compass, they have no intellectual fortitude, they know nothing about policy, they know nothing about issues, they have no beliefs, it's all the red team and the blue team, even though the red team is really like the blue team and enabling the blue team. So it's like monkey see, monkey do. So they eschewed all Reagan conservative principles for Trump worship. But the patheticness of what they did is that if you're going to do that, at least verify what the hell Trump believes in. Because frankly, Trump always believed in what I believe in. I was the one with the true Trump belief. I mean, look, I don't align myself with any person, whether it's Reagan, Cruz, Trump, or anyone. I, I, I you know, continuously and anchored to the timeless conservative principles we've always believed in. I'm not going to be swayed by any personality. But if that's your game... Well, dude, you're stupid. How many times do we have where the administration's about to do something really stupid? And everyone's like, Daniel, stop criticizing Trump. I'm like, you idiot, Trump doesn't really want this. But if none of you push what he intuitively wants and you allow the swamp within his administration to win out, pushed by Kushner or McAleenan or some of these other guys, well, that's what you're gonna get. You're not helping conservatism, but you're not even helping Trump and you're not helping his reelection. And this is what was so stupid. If conservatives would have pushed Trump the day after Parkland to hang around the necks of the Democrats, the promise program where we let out juveniles and don't lock them up. That was the case with Nicholas Cruz in Parkland, where they let out gun felons endlessly. Trump could have had suburban voters in the back of his pocket. Instead, they told him, go give up suburban white voters because you're going to get the black vote. What a stupid thing. You're not going to get any black vote because the type of blacks that want this aren't going to vote for you. Remember, most most blacks aren't criminals. And but at the same time, they are most affected by. Jailbreak, because mainly it's, you know, disproportionately blacks are you know convicted of violent crimes, do the violent crimes. But still, it's a minority of blacks, so it's law-abiding blacks who are hurt the most. It's just stupid. And then certainly, you're going to lose suburban whites, who historically are more gettable voters that should be within our coalition. Why blacks vote Democrat, I mean, that's a very vexing long-term problem. The notion that you're going to fix that by pandering with jailbreak is stupid. But instead, they, they, they chucked voters that they always had in their coalition um, for this unicorn promise of getting voters that we've really never had not in the modern era so that's the story imagine if you had it trump i will protect you from crime imagine if trump 
constantly reiterated that quote from his book. Let these elites have all these violent sex offenders in their neighborhoods, not in your neighborhoods. I'm going to keep you safe. You know what? He starts building a narrative, pushing legislation, have Tom Cotton introduce it, and then just bang away like we quoted from Reagan, who would bang away and say, call your congressman, pass this. You know what? I don't think impeachment would be too effective, and I think it would backfire just like it did with Bill Clinton. But anyway, let's get it even more local. So to me, this story about Worthington, Minnesota, cuts to the core of everything we're talking about with the policy and politics of immigration. Bringing in cultural problems, the cost, the cost of schools, social transformation of, of, of longstanding neighborhoods. The drugs and the crime that you're going to bring with it. And the fact that whenever the people get a say in this, they don't want it, but they never get a say. It's shoved on them. Anyone who would harness this point of social transformation without representation would win. So now what's interesting is this, this article by Michael E. Miller went everywhere. He actually exposes the problems. Now, he makes it all about race. Yeah, like I'm sure if you flood our schools with people that have major issues in foreign countries with violence, child pregnancy, all sorts of cultural problems, flood us with the cost, the drugs, the gangs, um, you know, we're, we're paying for the rope to hang ourselves. If the color of their skin would be white, people would just crawl on glass to embrace them. What a bunch of dimbos. But that that's how they frame it. But the point is, they don't realize most people reading it are going to be like, yeah, these farmers in Worthington are a bunch of racists. They're actually going to read it like, yeah, I mean, I'm noticing that in my neighborhood. I don't want that. So they start off talking about this guy, Don Brink, who is a school bus driver, as well as a farmer and a Vietnam War vet. And they, they smear him and they basically say that... Um, he used to have blonde children boarding the bus, chatting in English. Again, blonde children. They're making that up. They're adding that in there, but, but that's their take on it. This was the Worthington he knew. But then Brink headed back into town past the meatpacking plant that was the area's main employer and into the neighborhood he called Little Mexico, even though most of his residents were Central American. This was the Worthington he did not know, the Worthington he resented. At the corner of Dover Street and Douglas Avenue, a handful of Hispanic children were waiting. At Milton Avenue, there were a few more. Um, and, at, and at Omaha Avenue, a dozen students climbed the board, none of them white. Brink said nothing. And they go on to reveal that Worthington, Minnesota, has the second highest per capita resettlement of Central Americans through the Office of Refugee Resettlement than any other town in America. And it's only a town of 13,000 people. So um, while it is certainly flooding LA, Maryland, Virginia, I-95 corridor, it's also transforming small towns. We've said this a lot on the general refugee resettlement from the Middle East, from other, other places, but remember Central American teens who come in are... Um, are treated as refugees too, even though their parents and relatives are illegals working at the meatpacking plants 
They're not unaccompanied. They're paying cartels to traffic them in there. We resettle them at taxpayer cost in the ultimate scheme of illegal immigration chain migration against our laws. And then the locals have to pay for it in their schools. You know, we've been asking this question with all these, you know, tens of thousands, 70,000 of these unaccompanied, so-called unaccompanied, hundreds of thousands more coming in with their parents together, but ultimately they're reunited either way. What happens to these kids in the schools? Well, I'll tell you what happens. It's flooding the district. Five times in just over five years, the district has asked residents to approve an expansion of its schools to handle the surge in enrollment. Now look at this. Five times the voters have refused. The last time by a margin of just 17 votes. Um, but they note that another time it was two to one. So every time this came for a vote, the people rejected. Now, by the way, I would say a good part of those who voted for it, a lot of it is probably because they, they just feel they're already flooded and they, they, the schools are overcrowded, so they're going to say you need it. But would they support, meaning if you would hold a referendum, which of course they didn't because they, the states don't have a say in this, unfortunately, do you want to dump you know, 500, 1,000 um, kids from Central America into your schools They'd say no. Now, there's endless innuendo about a stream of dark-haired children. This is all their words. They make it all about race. And um, as we well know, there's been 70,000 resettled in this country just the the last year. And that's another thing. See, they talk about how we used to resettle 70,000 refugees. Oh, and the Trump's lowering the cap to 30,000. People like us want it to be at zero. How dare you do that? But they're forgetting they're double dipping because that's before we had the Central Americans. We're treating them. They are same way like refugees. We had 70,000 of them this year. 400 unaccompanied minors have been placed in this tiny Nobles County in the last six years. And look, you know, it's Texas County, Oklahoma, panhandle of Oklahoma being flooded. Scott County, Mississippi, South Mississippi, Manassas, Virginia. This is the social transformation that's taking place. And they talk about these girls that go pregnant into high school there. The boys are probably violent, but the girls pregnant. And they talk about going to um, see the doctor in middle of school. Like, you know, going for a medical appointment, which, of course, we're paying for and the schooling we're paying for. Then they talk about the number of English learning students. Imagine the cost and the social disruption of this. They say that since 2013, the number of ELL students has doubled to 35 percent of the students in this rural town. Small town within a rural county, at least are now English learning students, a.k.a. they don't speak English. And in the high school where most unaccompanied minors are placed, in the high school, it's tripled. I mean, we say this all the time. Everyone, including left-wing NGOs, like Amnesty International, whatever, Girls Not Brides, When they talk about the situation of indigenous rural areas in Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador, they will talk about how bad it is. 
the social problems, the child marriages, the poverty, the um, just just the the problems. And God bless these people. God bless all of the people that are living in horrible cultural cultures and and conditions throughout the world. But once you admit that, what you can't do is shove them on people like the townsfolk of, of, of Worthington, Minnesota. It's not their job to handle that. It's not their fault. This is what people don't realize. It has nothing to do with race. If you have a, a small town and someone, they're making about race, so let me make it about race. So let's say it's someone dark looking, as the Washington Post is obsessed with. Let's say they're from India or somewhere else, came here normally through the right process, working a good job, you know, assimilating well into America, the people would would welcome them. There's very few people that are inherently, oh, I don't like the color of your skin, whatever. There's very few people like that these days. People would welcome that. But when you carte blanche over a short period of time, just resettle. Remember, resettlement is not natural. It's not organic, where you kind of become tied to an area. It's you just, the government, the feds just dump into a town, you know, just because there's a meatpacking plant. You can't do that to a town. It's just common sense. And of course, they give away the farm at the end. They say, um, see, it's funny how they don't even realize they're proving our point. They say, um, in 2013, when the school district first asked voters to pay for new classrooms amid the influx of unaccompanied minors, the farmers feared that they would bear the brunt of the $39 million cost in the bond referendum. Now they're asking for $79 million. That's a lot of money for a small town. And they say, and this is this is really funny. So they talk about, um, yeah, these people resent it. Um, and they quote here that basically the tax base are the white farmers. And again, that's their word. I, I, to me, race has nothing to do with it. White farmers are the tax base. Well, yeah, I mean, so how dare you ask them to pay for this? I mean, this to me is the linchpin of electoral success. You show how national and international issues are now affecting local communities like this. It's a winner. They're lamenting it. Oh, it's about race. They could say it's about whatever they want, but people don't want it. And that includes Democrat voters. Nobody wants this unless they're totally brainwashed which, you know, 20, 25, even 30% of the country is. It's not 51%. And more than 51% vehemently oppose this stuff. But, I mean, we're doing this to take Amarillo, Texas, as one of the highest per capita resettlement of, of refugees. That was with Worthington. It was specifically UACs. <clears throat> but since two, 2002... By my count, I, I gathered this information up. Amarillo has been sent 352 refugees from Congo, <clears throat> 718 from Iran, 396 from Iraq, and 605 from Somalia. This is Amarillo. This is not L.A. And then you can imagine the secondary migration, because once they get green cards and then they become citizens, they bring in all their people. That's the story of Minneapolis, you know, Minnesota. Worthington's in the southwest corner on the way to Sioux Falls, Iowa. But, uh, you know, Minneapolis, the story is the Somalis. Who voted for this? 
what the Trump administration needs to do, number one, set the refugee cap at zero. Now, that's still not going to affect the Central Americans, but because we have the Central Americans stand before the American people and say, look, we have a million person backlog in the asylum system. So how do you bring in more? It makes no sense. But I don't have time to get to that, but there's a whole article out with Stephen Miller fighting with the State Department and the Pentagon. They all want to bring in more. Where are my colleagues? This is something Trump doesn't need Congress before for. You can't blame Pelosi for this. Trump inherently doesn't want this. But everyone in the admin is a swamp person. They're going to push him in that direction if you don't raise your voice. Number two. Number two. Local communities need to be given the right to reject refugee resettlement. This is an idea I've pushed since I wrote my book, Stolen Sovereignty. It's in my book, Chapter 8. There is nothing that speaks more to republicanism and democracy that people would love than they get to decide. And again, I'm not talking about empowering communities to reject immigrants. Look, you come in here, you earn your way in through the appropriate way. You know, yeah, I mean, organically, that's how it works. You you go where you want. But refugee resettlement is different. It's a whole program where the government takes large numbers and just resettles them. They have no resources. They're poor. They're either, you know, mainstream refugees from abroad or illegal alien children that are being reunited at taxpayer cost through a circuitous criminal trafficking conspiracy, um, reunited with their illegal parents who should be deported. That's a different story. And the people should be able to vote on that. Now, look, if you resettle them somewhere and then an individual wants to purchase an apartment, a home, gets a job somewhere else, I mean, you can't kick them out. That's, that's their right. But I'm just saying the refugee resettlement where the government and HHS come in to a community, let, let me read you what statute says. This is from Section 412 of the INA. It says that the Office of Refugee Resettlement is to ensure that a refugee is not initially placed or resettled in an area highly impacted by the presence of refugees or comparable populations. When making this determination, the director of OR is supposed to take into account, quote, the proportion of refugees and comparable entrants in the population in the area, the availability of employment opportunities, affordable housing, and public and private resources, and the likelihood of refugees placed in the area becoming self-sufficient and free from long-term dependence on public assistance. And at every stage in the process, it includes an advanced consultation with state and local governments. The word state is mentioned 41 times by my count in Section 412 of the INA. Now, unfortunately, at the end of the day, it doesn't give them veto power, but the administration could do that on, on its own, meaning they're not officially giving them veto power statutorily, but they're just saying, look, we're not going to choose an area if the people reject it. It's more of a, a policy modus operandi, which they have the right to do. Now, I would argue, you know, Trump needs to run on let the people decide. He should have Tom Cotton introduce this bill. Um, uh, Congressman uh, Scott Perry from Pennsylvania has introduced the House bill last couple of Congresses. We need a Senate component. Cruz, I think, had some sort of version. 
a while ago. And um, that needs to be given over to the people, and Trump needs to push for that. Let the people decide. I, I want you guys just for a moment to listen to Ronald Reagan's ra radio address on the crime bill, of all things on the crime bill. Listen to how he pushed a narrative and pushed an agenda right here. We're not about to quit on our crime bill. We're going to do what we've done in the past. We're going out to the heartland, and we're taking our case to you, the people. And so I'm asking for your help today. Please send a message to the House leadership. Tell them to stop kowtowing to the special interests and start listening to you, the American people. Americans want this anti-crime legislation, and they want it now. And if those of you listening will lend a hand, we can get it now. Please tell your elected representatives you expect full and fair representation, and that means getting this bill out of committee and onto the floor of the House for a vote. Notice that. Call your congressman. Nail them on it. I mean, this is what he needs to do. He needs to have a bill ending this nonsense with refugee resettlement. Let the people decide. Let the communities decide. And he also needs a bill. And really, this, in my view, doesn't need a bill. It could be done administratively saying that you cannot go and come here illegally, work here illegally, and then pay dangerous cartels that are killing America with drugs to go bring in your kids and have us resettle them at taxpayer cost in an illegal immigration chain migration scheme and then flood their communities with th these problems. The Democrats could scream race all they want, but that is how you win back suburban voters. And everything the president should be doing, every tweet, every speech, every message oriented towards that, oriented towards you know tough on crime policies, closing the loopholes with gun felons. That's what the president needs to do. Remember, the, the period of time where I believe the president was the strongest was after he gave his State of the Union addresses. If you remember, the media had nothing bad to say. He looked presidential. People agreed with the substance of it. They don't like his antics, but the substance of the policies, when they get out there, they agree with it. But if it doesn't get out there and all they see is the antics and the Democrats, you know, pushing impeachment, they're going to fuel that because you're going to get more of that with that. And it's going to be a race to the bottom. It's not going to end well. So, I mean, this is why there's no shortcut. You need an agenda. You need an agenda, number one, because politics should be about policy. I mean, I mean, at least it is for me. The reason why I'm involved in this is not to win elections as an end to itself. You want to win elections so you win the right policies. But I think we all kind of forget about that when you get into this business and it becomes an end to itself to make money, get on Fox, sell books, things like that. But that's not what it should be. But also the, the way you have you know, fortunate outcomes, auspicious electoral returns is by pushing a good policy with good messaging. That's what the president needs. He needs to talk every day about these crime stories, illegal alien crime stories. You know, you talk about UACs. I wanted to share this one with you. And this whole privacy policy business, how they can't tell us who they are. Alleged serial groper facing multiple sex abuse charges. This was from late last week in WCBS in New York. A Long Island man, I love this, Long Island man, faces multiple sexual abuse charges after he allegedly groped three women over the past few weeks. Police say Onel Jimenez Margadia, 20 years old, and that, that's very important, 
I'll get to that in a minute, stalked and followed at least three women in Nassau County before running up to them and groping them. The first attack reportedly happened in Plainview on September 9th. Second attack was September 12th in Levittown. And the most recent attack happened in a parking lot of the Roosevelt Field Mall on Thursday morning of last week. The mother of one 43-year-old victim tells WCBS um, that in the Levittown incident, Jaminias Margadia attacked her daughter in front of her home. She was coming home from a dance lesson, and he followed her from 7-Eleven all the way home. But I just thank God my daughter's okay. Prosecutors say Jaminias Margadia has had contact with federal immigration authorities in the past. Now, I reached out to ICE, and they said he has a green card. Now, usually if they have a green card, you know, it's not until after there's a conviction, then they should be deported. What's this contact with federal immigration authorities? I can't prove this because they won't give it to me. I doubt this guy is a clean LPR that properly applied and came here as a legal immigrant. Being that he's 20 years old, I'd say he was resettled four years ago or so, 16 years old, as a UAC. And he's really a total illegal alien that finagled himself into the status he's never entitled to. Grope three women. This is, this is very common. The president needs to talk about this every day of the week. Every day of the week. I mean, there, there's, there's endless stories. Heck, even the Fresno newspaper said he was right. Where is this here? I'm trying to find this. Um, Fresno B, and you know, no uh, uh, friendliness to Trump. They say President Trump is right. This undocumented criminal should be deported. And they basically go on to say that you know California passed the sanctuary law two years ago to um, basically block ICE from doing their job, and sheriffs cannot, in most cases, coordinate with ICE whenever an undocumented suspect is in, j- in jail. But that prohibition took on a dangerous significance two weeks ago when an undocumented man who had been in Merced County's jail earlier this year uh, but got a release fired shots at sheriff's deputies trying to take him into custody. One deputy sustained a shot in his leg, but it was not serious. Another uh, shot was stopped by his bulletproof vest. A manhunt and chase ensued. Suspect fired at CHP officer before being captured. Thankfully, no innocent bystander was hurt. But the case shows the serious weakness in the law that the legislature must address before a member of the public gets killed. And they go on to say how this guy, you know, had a criminal background. He's here illegally, but he was charged with battery um, for threatening his wife with a knife. Notice, by the way, there's a tremendous amount of domestic violence with them. And uh, he pled no contest to the misdemeanor. Judge gave him early release, um, and he had other crimes and was never given over. And they go on to say this must not happen again. This is a liberal paper in California saying this. Sanctuaries, refugee resettlement, illegal alien chain migration, transforming communities, the crime, the drugs, the gangs, the fiscal cost. Who's paying for it? The schools. English learning programs. Who? How dare you shove that on a small town? These are 70, 30, 80, 20 issues. 
Where is the sustained, disciplined, consistent narrative and legislative push on this stuff? Give the American people a sense of what you will get if you reelect them and expand majorities in the Senate and, and you know give the Republicans control of the House. But instead, there's nothing but drama. So people are going to get tired of it. And I, and I fear that the impeachment push is going to really speak to that. And I'm not confident that it's going to backfire on the Democrats. Now, look, if they nominate Elizabeth Warren or Biden or any of these people and they turn out to be nutty and it's a matter of a choice, you could wind up getting back voters by hook or by crook. But I'd rather it be hook and not crook. You know, I'd rather, you know, let, let's do this stuff we're supposed to be doing anyway and win, win an election to boot. Because this stuff is still continuing and it's a problem. Anyway, we're about out of time. Tomorrow is our special 500th anniversary show. Um, yes, it'll be our 500th episode. We're going to have USCIS acting director Ken Cuccinelli on for that occasion. Let me know any questions you want me to ask him. Um, but that's the thing. I'm just going to remain focused. And I think that's what most of you want to hear, the stuff you're not going to hear elsewhere. But it's not off topic. I believe it is the topic. It is the topic that you're going to win, not just because they're the right policies, but if you're worried about the scandals and the impeachment, well, do good on policy. That's the best way you save yourself. There's not much you can do that's going to determine the outcome. Either way, the Democrats don't have the votes to convict. Either way, they, have, they do have the votes to do the impeachment in the House. You're not going to affect that outcome. But what you can do is show the, show the American people how I'm doing good. They are radical. Accentuate their radicalism by picking these fights sound presidential, give speeches on policy, and then people will laugh off the impeachment. If not, who knows? It could work. But nobody takes my advice. But you guys certainly appreciate it, and I will be dishing out more of this same time, same place tomorrow. Till next time, God bless you all, and thanks for listening.